103a, and we are continuing in our commentary on the Mishnah, which deals with all the laws of the various laws of Chalitza. And the Mishnah mentioned that you could do Chalitza with a shoe that has that's connected to uh, the lower part of the foot, meaning the calf, but not the thigh. If you do Chalitza with somebody by the, by the area of the thigh, that does not work, which implies that when we talk about a regel, halachically a regel, a foot, what does the foot include? It, does, it includes the calf, but it does not include the thigh. So the Gemara is going to ask from various places, various uh, verses, that this is not really true. Masa, or seemingly not true. Masa, Rav Kahana, Rav Kahana asks that we find in a pasuk, in, in a verse in Devarim, that with regards to um, giving birth, uh, that it says between her legs, so the thigh is the leg. So, what this means is that when she crouches to give birth, she sort of moves her heels towards her thigh, and so therefore it looks like it's coming out of her feet. It really is coming out of her heels and not from her thigh. That's what it means. But we're going to have various other verses which seem to imply that the regel, the foot, includes the thigh. This is a question of what does the foot halachically include. Tashma loas, regel We have a verse in Shmuel that seems to imply that regel, the foot, is referring to the area by the thigh, by the groin. So the Gemara says, No, the Gemara explains that um, in that context, it was dealing with pubic hair, and so therefore it uses a euphemism uh, to have a cleaner language. In fact, uh, the, the the Rambam, Maimonides, points out that the reason why Hebrew is referred to as Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language, is because it is a clean language. You will not find uh, terms that are used that are uh, improper terms. They don't have a, a direct translation. Uh, so, for example, sexual relations is referred to as ba, as entering, but it doesn't actually explain. It's not, it doesn't really, or bia, uh, having relations, or yada, to know, but it doesn't use the actual term. And so here, too, when it's discussing uh, pubic hair, it doesn't have an actual term for it, but it says the legs. And similarly, over there, too, also in the context of going to the bathroom, he uses the language of uh, covering his feet. It's not referring to the feet; it's referring to the to the to the thighs, the upper thighs. Lishnamalia. That's also a cleaner language. So another place in Judges and Shoftim where it says this. Also, it says covering the feet. Lishnamalia. All these are lishnamalia. Also, ben ragla These are all euphemisms to have a cleaner language. Okay, so the Gemara now says, once they discussed the certain context, which has to do with Yael, the last case was from a story between Sistra and Yael, a very important story, where Yael essentially um, uh, has sex, Sistra as the enemy of the Jewish people, and so she basically is able to kill him by seducing him. They have sexual relations that we'll see seven times, tires him out, and then kills him. Uh, so the Gemara now explains, I'm Rabbi Yochanan, Sheva Bilos Balosa Rasha Bosayom. They had sexual relations seven times with the, with Sisra, the wicked man Sisra. Yael did that. Shanamar, how do we know that it was seven times? Because the verse says that she fell down seven times. He uses the language falling seven times. Ben Raglea Kara, Nafal. Shachal Ben Raglea, Kara, Nafal. Bashar Kara, Sham Nafal, Shadud. 
so it uses it seven times. So within that context now, the Gemara sort of goes on a bit of a tangent to discuss the story between Yael and Sisra. It happens to be a very important story. How is it possible that Yael was uh, able to, uh, was it allowed? Was it allowed for her to seduce uh, Sisra? Uh, Sisra was, was going to kill the Jewish people. She has sexual relations with her in order to save the Jewish people. So some say the reason why it's allowed, even though in general we say there's three averos, three sins where a person has to give up their life for. Um, that's for uh, illicit relations, for murder, for idol worship. Over here, she's not even giving, it wasn't that she was threatened by her life in this case. It happens to be she wasn't even threatened by her life. She initiated. She seduced him and she initiated. So how is this allowed? So either one answer that's given by the commentators is that she's allowed to do this because it's specifically... Mm-hmm. If you are, if you're passive, and she as a woman is passive, in the act of the actual act of bia of sexual relations, she is passive. He enters into her, and so she's passive, and so therefore, it's only a problem if you are active. Even though she's really seducing him, and so before the actual intercourse, uh, she's active. But we focus just on the actual prohibition itself, and in that case, she is in that situation, she's passive, and as such, uh, the prohibition does not apply to her. Alternatively, some explain that the reason why this was allowed is because it's limited to, to a specific case where it's saving the entire Jewish people. The entire Jewish people being threatened by Sisera, and so it's allowed in order to uh, preserve the entire Jewish people. And there's a discussion amongst the commentators what happens in cases where it's not to save the entire Jewish people, but it's to, there to save some of the Jewish people. So are you, is, is a woman allowed to initiate, I'm not talking about being passive, but to initiate and seduce actively so that others are, uh, including herself, are, uh, they're, they're able to survive. So that is, that is a big discussion, and a lot of it uh, is dependent on how you understand the whole story of Yael. So that, that story has uh, major ramifications for, for this particular topic. There's also a discussion of, assuming that it's allowed, is she allowed to stay married to her husband, uh, even if it's allowed? Because we know that by Esther, Esther had sexual relations with Ahasuerus, and we say that once she had sexual relations with Ahasuerus, she was already married. Uh, she becomes prohibited to her husband. So what would be the difference? Some want to say that by Yael, it was really allowed. Um, so what would be the difference? So there are different answers to that question. Some want to say that maybe by by Esther, it was really a step removed. It was uh, Esther wasn't directly through the act of sexual relations that uh, she was able to save the Jewish people, but it was over time. By Yael, right away, she killed, uh, right after sexual relations, she killed Sistra. So maybe she's allowed to stay married to her husband because it happens right away. Um, others say that maybe Yael was really, she is prohibited to her husband even after she did what she did, even if it was allowed, even if it was allowed and she was praised, not only was it allowed, but she was praised uh, for what she did. Still, at the end of the day, as we've seen in other contexts, just the act of sexual relations alone, even if it's allowed, so it, it creates a, a distance, it creates a, some sort of defilement of Tumah to one's husband, and so therefore it becomes uh, no longer uh, allowed. They cannot stay married, even if if the act itself is permissible and encouraged, perhaps. So Mara wants to know, though, how could she, not how could she do this, we just explained how she could do this, but how, the way Tosos understands this, the classic commentator is, how she praised so much for doing what she did. In the end of the day, she initiated we praise her as if she's one. She's compared to the Imahos, to our foremothers, who were very tsanua. They were very uh, modest, um, and they, and uh, she was very uh, out there and active. 
even if it was what we refer to as an Avera Lishma, a sin for the sake of heaven. Uh, but how can we praise Yael so much for what she did? So Abra Bilcham Bishim Bishim Ben Yochai Bishim Ben Yochai explains, Kol Tavasan Shal Rishayim Rahi Eitzel Tzadikim. Whenever uh, the those who are evil they do good, so then it's viewed as bad. Uh, it's viewed as bad for the righteous. The righteous don't get any pleasure out of it. Uh, the good itself is not good because. Uh, it's it's disgusting to the tzaddik. Whatever good they do for the tzaddik, for the righteous one, it's viewed as disgusting. As the verse says in the context of Lavan, Lavan when he went, uh, Yaakov uh, ran away from Lavan, and Lavan, his uh, father-in-law, um, was going to uh, was going to uh, kill, was going to chase after him. So Hashem appears before Lavan and says the night before. He says, hold on a second. Don't do anything to Yaakov. Don't do anything good and don't do anything bad. So, I understand why Lavan can't do anything bad to Yaakov, but why did Hashem tell, tell Lavan, don't do anything good to Yaakov? What do you mean, don't do anything good to Yaakov? Go ahead and do something good to Yaakov. What's the problem? So the Gemara explains, no, the reason is, is because anything that's good, any pleasure that the Tzadik gets, that someone who's righteous gets from somebody who's evil and wicked, it's really because they're so disgusted by it, as Rashi, the classic commentator, explains, they're so disgusted by any benefit that they would receive from, from a really, truly wicked person, it, it's, it's, like they don't get, it's like they don't get that pleasure. It's like they don't receive that pleasure. So that ha- would happen with Yaakov. And similarly, when it comes to Yael, Yael with Sisra, having sexual relations with Sisra, she would, she would be so disgusted by Sisra, who he was, that she didn't get any positive benefit from it. So Gemara wants to know, okay, there's no positive benefit, but what's the evil involved? How is it viewed as evil? I understand when it comes to Lavan. The good they try to do turns into evil. A, it's not good because how could, it's so disgusting to get any pleasure out of it, but how is it bad? Because maybe he'll mention the name of an idol worshiper and that will repulse uh, Yaakov. But over here, by Yael, how does it turn into a negative? How does it even turn into a negative? So Gemara explains, no, it does. This is also very important, Gemara. This, is very, this, entire, uh, this entire recording is a lot of interesting, uh, important ideas. No, it is, because since he's not Jewish, so we, we believe that uh, having sexual relations with somebody who's not Jewish, besides for that, the fact that we discussed the prohibition involved, whether it's rabbinic or biblical, but it implants into a person a certain amount of zuhama. It's a hard word to, to really define, but it's some form of contamination. Some form of contamination. How do we know this? Going back to the very first day of mankind, when the nachash, the snake, had sexual relations with chava. We believe that the snake had sexual relations with chava. It doesn't mean a physical form of sexual relations. It must be some sort of spiritual idea of of being confused, of not knowing the difference between truth and falsehood, but it's just good and bad, which is not objective. So he he, he put into her some idea of zuama, some sort of contamination that went away when the Jewish people received the Torah. Yisrael Shamdul Harsinai Pascha Zuhamasa. When the Jews stood by Harsinai, by Mount Sinai, so then that's when it ended this form of zuama. They had this clarity when they were standing by the foot of Mount Sinai. They had this sense of clarity, of understanding, of really knowing what the truth is versus what's, what's, what's untrue. 
But the non-Jews who they didn't stand in front of Mount Sinai by Har Sinai, uh, their, their Zuma uh, continues to exist. This contamination continues to exist. Now, we believe that converts also, they stood by the foot of, of Har Sinai by Mount Sinai, and so they were also there, so they also don't have this Zuma. But if a, if a person has sexual relations with a non-Jew, so besides the fact that there's a prohibition involved, they also, what enters into them, just like by the Nachash, what enters into them is this form of a spiritual contamination uh, which a person which a person then receives. And so that's the evil that happened with Yael. Yael did this because she did this to save the Jewish people. But at the end of the day, by doing this, it also contaminated her and it really ended up becoming... And so therefore we can really praise her. As, as that, that was the original question. How do we praise her as, as one of the Imahos? She's, a, she's better than the, our foremothers who were very modest. No, she, she got no benefit. Absolutely no benefit from it. And Many of the commentators point out that in order to do an Aver Lishma, basically a sin, for, but it's for the sake of Hashem. And so she committed the sin for the sake of Hashem. You cannot have any ulterior motives whatsoever. You cannot have any ulterior motives. She had no ulterior motives. She got zero benefit out of it, uh, zero pleasure out of it. In fact, it was a negative uh, because she became contaminated through it. She had this zuama, the spiritual contamination. And so that's why she is praised uh, so much. The Gemara now continues on. We finish that discussion, and the Gemara now continues on with the next couple of cases of the Mishnah. So the Mishnah said that if you do chalitza, which is a shoe that's not yours, it works. It does work. As we will see in the Gemara, it is still preferable to use a shoe that actually belongs to you. So in the actual process of chalitza, they use a, uh, a shoe that does belong, uh, they, they basically it belongs to the court, but they they give it to the uh, persons for them to own it. They basically transfer the ownership uh, for that for that amount of time, so that it belongs to the person to the to the brother-in-law, so that he does own it, even though it's not necessary. But we'll see that it is better. It is better for him to own it. The question is, how do we know this? The verse says, "His shoe." So seemingly, it has to, he has to own it. How do we know? That it's if it's even if it's anybody's shoe, because the verse also multiple times it says shoe, it means any shoe. He doesn't have to own it, it can be any shoe. Oh, if that's the case in Cain, why does it say his shoe? So it doesn't mean in terms of ownership, but it means it means that it has to be his shoe in the sense that it has to fit him, it has to fit his his foot. It has to be a shoe that fits its foot to the exclusion of, let's say, it's too big for him, or if it's too small, or if it doesn't have the proper support to wear it. So in all those cases, uh, it would not it would not work uh, in those cases because it actually has to fit. Um, so as we'll see, that uh, it's ideally you should have you should own it. So let's just read the Gemara. How do, how do we know that? And then we'll comment on it. Um, so says the Gemara, the following story based on this, Abaye have a kai kamei de Rav Yosef. Abaye was standing in front of Rav Yosef. And what happened was, Asi Yavam Apparently it was more common, as we mentioned in the past, to do chalitza because people died younger. So there's more couples, unfortunately, dying without children. So Yavama, sister-in-law, came to, to do chalitza. He came before Rav Yosef. So Rav Yosef, Amalei, Rav Yosef said to Abaye, Havle Sandalech. He said, go ahead and give your uh, shoe to the brother-in-law, and so that he'll be able to do chalitza with it. So what does he end up doing? 
What does Abaya do? Yav Sandalot de Smale. He gives his left shoe. The, the brother-in-law will put it on his right foot. Uh, and our Mishnah pointed out that it could even be, you could use a left shoe. Ideally, you shouldn't. Ideally, you should use the right shoe as long as it's on his right foot. It has to be on his right foot. But Abaya goes out and gives him his left shoe for him to put on his right foot, which is very strange. Why did he do this? So Amr lay. Rabbi Yosef says, why are you doing this? I understand. We know that it works, but this isn't ideal. It's better to, why if you have both your right and left foot shoe, go ahead and give him your right shoe. Why did you give your left shoe? It's not, it's not ideal. So Abayah says back, you also told me to do something which is not ideal by giving the shoe to begin with. You told me to give my shoe, him my shoe. It's not his shoe. Why would you tell me to, to, to give him my shoe? If it's really my shoe, so then it's also not ideal. So because you told me to do something which is not ideal, I gave him the shoe, which is also not ideal. I gave him my left shoe, not my right shoe. So Rav Yosef explains back. He says, Amrlai, that's not what I meant. Rav Yosef says, I didn't mean to, to give it to him as just uh, uh, to borrow. Go ahead and transfer the ownership to him. You're right. You have to transfer the ownership. So we see that it's it's ideal to transfer the ownership. So just to explain, why is it ideal to transfer the ownership? Why do you have to do that? We just explained a minute ago that the verse, because it says shoo shoo, it says the word shoo, not all, many times, it's coming to tell you that you don't have to own it. Uh, so there's two explanations given. One is that if it's your shoe, so then the chances are, there's a higher chance that it actually fits your foot. And so it's better for you to use your shoe, not because there, there's a value to using your shoe, but because that will reflect the fact that it actually fits uh, your foot which might not be the case in Abaya giving his shoe and just transferring ownership, but that is one explanation. And it just becomes a rule that it's best to use your own shoe. Uh, the, second, uh, the second explanation is that, very interesting explanation, is that even though it's true, based on expounding of the verses and the different words that are used in the verses, it, it teaches us that you don't have to own it, and it's, a, it's, just, it's good enough if, um, if it fits, if, if it's the right size for your foot. But there is a concept in general that the pshuto shal mikra, the very simple understanding of the verse, should be performed as well in a lechatila fashion, in an ideal fashion. It's not required, but there is a sense of it being ideal, which is a very fascinating point. That the even though the halacha reinterprets the verse itself, but there is value to also fulfilling it based on the literal translation of the verse. So that's a that's a very interesting point. Uh, that comes out of the Gemara as well. Okay, let's see just a few more lines and then we'll conclude. Sandal shall eat. This is, continues on with the Mishnah. The Mishnah said that if you do chalitza with a wooden sandal, then it works. What do you mean a wooden sandal? We pointed out before that you have to use uh, leather. It has to come from an animal. So the Gemara says, who's the author? It must be Rav Meir, as we pointed out in a previous recording. Rav Meir is of the opinion that it doesn't have to be made out of leather. It doesn't have to come from an animal. Uh, which is why he says that if you go outside on Shabbos with, uh, with a wooden leg, so then that would work. Uh, not work, but that would be a violation of Shabbos. That, that would, sorry, that would work. It wouldn't be viewed as a violation of Shabbos because it would be viewed as a shoe. So here too, it goes according to Rav Meir. That's one explanation. The father of Shmuel said, No, or No, we're not going with the corner of mayor. We're going to go according to the opinion that we had earlier that you need to come from an animal. But the point here is that it's covered by leather, even though it's wooden, but it's covered by leather. And many explain what does it mean that it's covered by leather? It means that 
the inner covering, not that the outer covering is leather, but that the inner covering itself is leather. Okay, we are in the middle now of Kuf Gimel Bays 103b, and we will continue with this discussion in the next uh, in the next recording.